You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, Episode 77, brought to you by Vesta Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Hey, it's Greg here. It's the spring equinox, the first day of spring, March 20th, 2019, as I record this. And apropos of that, today we're the topic is early starts. Uh, the working title I have here is How to Break the Rules and Kickstart Things in Your Garden. Uh, I might change my mind. Don't hold me to that. I might think of a shorter way to say that. Uh, by the time I'm done editing the uh, podcast. So uh, I'm going to talk about how to get things started, how to jumpstart the season, how to get things started a little bit early in the garden. And uh, I've got a couple caveats here because uh, i got to confine the topic to uh, the way I garden and, and the way I go at things. So I'm not talking about transplant. We just did a transplanting show, and of course that is a, a useful way to kickstart a garden, just grow things inside until it's warm enough and then harden them off and then grow them outside. Um, that's a good way to do it, <laughs> of course. And uh, of course a greenhouse is another great way, just basically make make uh, make an indoors that's like an outdoors, <laughs> that sort of thing. I'm not going to talk about those two. I'm going to touch on the greenhouse idea a little bit, just talk about uh, what I don't like about it, but an idea I have that I've been playing around with. We'll get to that later. We're not going to talk about greenhouses. We're not going to talk about uh, transplants. I'm going to talk about gardening the way I do it, where I try to direct seed everything, um, despite the fact that I have a short, fairly short growing season. And yes, I'm in 6A, but it's still a short growing season. I'll talk about that a little bit, a little bit further on if I haven't talked about it enough already. But I always get comments about it, so i got to keep talking about it. Um, also useful for new, new viewers to sort of understand all of that and why the zone doesn't necessarily tell you everything about your your the length of your growing season. Uh, I'll touch on that very quickly because I've touched on it many times before. Um, so I'm going to talk about direct seeding, uh, the direct seeding approach. Um, why do I do direct seeding? Right, because the plants uh, hate me. I just I just did a. You go on my YouTube channel. I just did a whole. I did a talk at a gardening club, and when I got home, I took that PowerPoint and. Made a video of it and recorded that and did a whole uh, YouTube video, sort of virtual or whatever presentation on that. So you can, if, you, if you're interested in why I direct see why I don't do transplants and that whole argument, you can listen to that. It's about 40 minutes long. Short version is that plants don't like being moved in general. Uh, the changes in the growing environment cause uh, setbacks in the plants. Uh, there's many benefits to having plants growing in the full spectrum of natural light from the moment they germinate. We even touched on that a little bit um, with uh, last episode we had Robert Pavlis uh, on the show talking about how natural light is just so much more bright. You know, we, Our eyes can't really tell the difference but it's ridiculously bright outside compared to what we might consider bright inside. That's why you go outside, you get a sunburn, and you spend too much time in the sun, you might get skin cancer, those sorts of things. Right? The sun is extremely powerful. You don't get that from a bright light bulb inside. Um, and it's natural light's what plants need, right? The thing they need the most is natural light, sunlight. That's how they're, they didn't evolve to grow under lamps, right? <laughs> they, they evolved outside in the sun in, in that situation, right? So that's what they want. It's like a baby. You don't give a baby what was convenient for you. You give the baby what it wants, what it needs, and you're going to get the healthiest baby you possibly can. The same thing with the plant. You give it what it needs, it's going to be the healthiest plant you can possibly get. And of course, the, you don't have to deal with the hardening off. So that's the short version. <laughs> you want the long version? <laughs> Go back, you know, about a week or so, and there's a whole YouTube video on that. Um, also, uh, I can only really speak from experience, and so I use the no-till approach, right? The uh, Ruth Stout method. 
the uh, that approach to gardening. Uh, another term for it is permaculture. I like using the term no-till the most, I think, because it, it instantly conveys to the listener exactly some aspect of it, right? Oh, I didn't know to, you don't till, right? It, 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 it immediately causes a conversation. I use no-till no -till approach. What do you mean you don't till? You have to tell. No, you don't, then I can talk about it, right? So if I say I use permaculture, then you know, what, 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 what does that mean? Right? If I say Ruth Stout method, people will say, who was Ruth Stout? Who's Ruth Stout? So, so no-till, I think, conveys... That's why I like using that term. It immediately conveys the meaning of what I'm trying to say uh, in a very short, terse, you know, to the point sort of way. Of course, there's there's more to it than that. And I mean, no no till roost out. These are all uh, versions of what uh, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren outlined in their book Permaculture One, Permaculture Two, that sort of thing. That that whole approach to gardening, where you you copy natural system. You go in a forest. No one ever tells the soil. No one, no one does any of the things you would do in a conventional garden in a forest. Yet the forest seems to just get by just fine without any of that, and it's because it's a it's a natural system and it works a certain way. If you can to oversimplify, if you can copy those natural systems in your gar garden, uh, you'll find it's a lot easier. It's a lot cheaper, totally organic, sustainable, good to your environment, and your kind of organisms on the planet, and all that sort of stuff. If that's important to you, it certainly is important to me. Um, but even if those things don't matter to you at all, it's just an easier and cheaper way to get a good yield out of your garden. So, you know, like if you don't care about any of that stuff, you just like easy and cheap, it's still a good way to go. Um, and of course, you don't have to bother tilling, you don't have to fertilize, there's minimal watering and weeding. I really don't water my garden much of the year. And uh, most of the work I do each year of the garden is, is just basically dealing with the, all the food I've grown. So, if you're new to my podcast, that's just, you know, I'm just. It's the second, second, third. It's the third episode this season. This is season four of the Maritime Grinding Podcast. I thought I'd just ream through that um, a to to frame the conversation I'm about to have within the way I garden. So everything I'm talking about here that I've done has worked in this garden that I have right now. That is a no-till garden. I'm sure these would work in conventional garden as well. I'm just saying that's what I've got going on here. So I mean, gardeners are always saying, "Well, this worked for me. That worked for me." This worked for you. Why didn't it work for me? All this sort of stuff. And it's like, well, did you do exactly the same thing that I did in exactly the same respect under the same conditions exactly? Because if you're not doing the same thing I'm doing, or if I'm not doing the same thing you're doing, then it's very difficult for me to say why something did or didn't work for you, right? Um, climate, you know, microclimate or your, your growing zone or all that stuff, all of that put aside, right? If we're not doing things the same way, and it's difficult to say why different results occurred. All right, so we laid that out. Now, why? Why do I use the early uh, start? Why do I use these techniques in my garden? And I didn't always do this. I used to live in a part of the province where I live here in Nova Scotia, Canada. That was about an hour's drive away. And I didn't do any of this stuff because I didn't need to. <laughs> that growing zone is, is pretty much the same as here. It's either zone 6A or 6B. But it's a very different microclimate than the one here. The zone doesn't tell you a lot, right? And I've talked about this on previous uh, previous uh, podcast episodes, right? Here, where I live, which is an hour from where I used to live, it's a much shorter growing season, and it's got nothing to do with the, the zone. It's about the microclimate and other factors. Um, if you go look on. Uh, you go online, look at the time of day. It's about how much, uh, there's an episode I did 
a couple of years ago now called Growing Degree Days. And it's speaking to a measure, and I'm not going to get into it right now, but a way of measuring. It's a much more accurate way to speak to the issue of why uh, a given growing season might be shorter in one location and longer in, in another. It's got nothing to do with the uh, growing zone. The growing zone matters in certain regards. It certainly matters if you're planting perennials and you want to know if they'll survive the winter. Um, but it doesn't tell you anything about how many days a year the growing conditions at your location are such that they will support the growing of the things you're trying to grow. Right? That's what matters. For how many for how many days is it the case that the soil is warm enough and the air is warm enough and there's no risk of frost for a given kind of plant to germinate, grow, and reach maturity and give up a yield, right? That's what matters. And your growing zone really doesn't tell you that. A really good example is a contrast between where my, my mom lives in Edmonton, which is like zone 3B or 4A, just different uh, measures of what it is, and where I am here in zone 6A, right? So you'd think, wow, I must have a way longer growing season than them. Um, but if you look at the length of day right now, the length of day in Edmonton is about the same as it is here. I'm always surprised. My mother always gets tomatoes about a month earlier from me. And it's not like she's doing anything special. <laughs> right? She goes to uh, Walmart, buys a tomato transplant, sticks it in a bucket. <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, about as simplistic a way of, of, of getting a tomato to grow as possible. And I've tried everything, every trick in the book, and I, I, t I tend to not get my tomatoes until uh, very late August or, or even September sometimes. Um, and what's the difference between where she lives? Right now, the length of day is about the same as about 12 hours of daylight uh, in Edmonton. There's about 12 hours of daylight here. Um, in about a month, there'll be 30 more minutes of sunlight per day. And by the height of the summer, the summer solstice, there'll be 17 hours of daylight there in Edmonton. And there'll be 15 and a half here. So it's a pretty stark contrast and much longer day. So nowhere near what they've got going on there, right? They have these incredibly long days and they actually even get hotter during the day. And of course, a major difference, despite the length of day, which isn't the whole story in that location, they don't have fog and rain all the time because it's almost a desert, right? It's not a desert, but it's like a desert in a lot of ways. They don't get all this fog and overcast and, and rain and stuff like that like we do here. So they get more bright, shiny, sunny days than we do. We get a lot of foggy, overcast days, and we have a lot of days where it's eventually sunny, but it's overcast until about noon. So uh, I don't get, even though I'm further south, right, and it doesn't get anywhere near as cold in the winter here, geez, it can get to like minus 35 Celsius there, um, or more, I think. Um, but they have a totally different kind of summer than we have here and a totally different kind of uh, growing season than we do. Um, so I have a short growing <laughs> all of that to say I have a short growing season. People are going and the reason I did a whole preamble is uh, zone 6A. Oh, I'd love to live in zone 6A. Well, yeah, if you were in like New Jersey or something, I think it'd be a different situation, right? But it's just because it's zone 6A here doesn't mean we have these super hot summers, right? Um, so, um, it's different here. Let's just put it that way. It's a microclimate, and, and the, all these things matter. Your microclimate matters. You could have a really beneficial one or one that's not so good. So I use all these early start techniques to uh, deal with the fact that I've got a not an ideal uh, 
growing season, right? I got a lot of days where I don't get as much sunlight as I'd like to get. I get so I have to make the most of the sunlight. I sunlight I've got, so I got to cheat. Uh, another reason to have an early start, even if you have the greatest you know situation in the world, you can increase your yield, right? If you can get your season started before the season actually starts, you can get a better yield. You might be able to get two crops of greens out of the same patch of earth, or if you've got a plant that's you know like an indeterminate tomato type thing. You can get it bearing fruit earlier, and it'll just keep keep bearing fruit, or certain kinds of beans, pole beans, right? They'll keep bearing fruit until the frost hits. So if you can begin that before, you know, a, a week early, two weeks early, a month early, etc., you're going to get a better yield. That's another reason to do early, have an early start, or, or try to strive for an early start. Um, it also can simplify uh, simplify your your gardening process. Simplify that process of getting your start garden started in the spring. By spreading out the, the different tasks, right? Instead of having to sow everything uh, as soon as the soil can be worked, which uh, this year looks like it's going to be somewhere in late May, perhaps, or late, uh, so not May, late April. Just so the way the way things are looking, I'm not optimistic, and I'm an optimistic guy, <laughs> but the ground is frozen right now. Um, by you know, spread things out, so you have a couple beds where you've put, you know, some sort of, you've you've affected some sort of microclimate. And those beds can be sown maybe a month ahead of time or a week ahead of time or whatever. Um, so that's just one more thing you don't have to do when everything else is thought of, right? So it, you can get some things started a bit early, and then you don't have to do those things when you're busy doing all the other things you got to do, right? especially if you have a large garden like like mine. It really does uh, make the whole process of getting your garden in a little less overwhelming and and more 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 relaxing, right? It's just okay today. I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to do that. Whereas when you have to do everything all at once, it's like, oh my God, this weekend I get all these things I have to do. I have to schedule it. I have to be organized. It's just like work, right? You don't want that. So it spreads things out and just makes it simpler, more relaxing. I go to my garden to relax. So that helps me uh, do that. It also gets you gardening a little bit sooner if you've got that. And a lot of people like getting transplants going in their house because they can feel like they're gardening sooner. Well, I like getting things going um, in my little microclimates back there uh, to get things going sooner. Uh, also, Another reason to have an early start is it helps you avoid pests, right? Uh, you plant something in late March, um, it's it gets a head start. A lot of these uh, different uh, problematic things, and slugs and flea beetles and certain things like that, they they come along when when the environment has reached a certain temperature. So if you can get things growing in a microclimate before that, the plant's just that much further along when they start attacking it. So the, the plant can be a little tougher, a little more mature, a little more able to withstand that, and you, you'll be less reliant on, on pesticides and stuff to, uh, to fight them off and, and help that plant get a, a good, you know, a good toehold on uh, an existence. Um, so, with no further ado, let's talk about uh, different techniques here. So all the techniques I'm going to speak to here, uh, except one, if I recall, are... Um, Various means to affect microclimates in your garden. And the first thing I'm going to do is speak to all the ones I have used in my garden, which are all very cheap and they're completely effective, but extremely cheap to do. Um, so, uh, hoop houses. I've got videos on that. If you've been following my videos, it's just a, it looks like a cylinder that's been cut in half lengthwise. There's various ways to, to build them. Many different forms of construction. I like, I like making a wooden rectangle. And then bending a piece of um, concrete wire remesh. It's like a four by eight uh, mesh, coat hanger wire mesh uh, sheet. I bend that around it, stretch some plastic over it, basically makes a little dome. Um, 
you, I, you can put those on, uh, leave them on there all winter if you want to try to minimize how much the gardens freeze up. That will help them thaw out a bit sooner. I had mine on all winter this year, and just to give it, this that should have kept my soil with the mulch and all that other stuff. That should have kept my soil in my gardens, the ones where I had hoop houses, uh, from freezing at all. But they froze anyway. Because <laughs> if they don't have sunlight, and it's just been an unbelievably dreary, overcast winter, if you don't have sunlight and it's below freezing, everything freezes, right? If you've got a hoop house and you've got sun, then the sun keeps it warm. If there's no sun, nothing, there ain't nothing keeping it warm. So everything in there will just freeze because this is no no warmer or colder than outside. I mean, the, the the dome might hold a little bit of the heat from the uh, the compost action of your, your mulch and stuff in the garden, but um, there's only so much that can do. It's a pretty thin layer. Now I'm sure there's more sophisticated where you can add extra layers and double it up, and there's all kinds of different things you you can do. But then it gets that much more elaborate, and you have to spend more money, and your garden becomes more uh, outrageous. The whole operation. So the hoop house is a really good one. Uh, the problem with the kind I use is that uh, they're not easy to store. I mean, I've got a, a lot of property, so I just sort of fire them in the woods. Um, but uh, there's other other types of models that, that, that come apart and you put them together and take them apart, uh, which, which I would do if I was gardening in a more suburban environment or an urban environment and space was an issue. I would use the ones that, that come apart. But um, I don't have to do that here, so why would I put myself through that when I can just fire them in the woods? <laughs> um, another really simple thing to use is, is the, the things I'm, I, I like to really like using these in the garden. It's a plastic square. It's just a you make a wooden rectangle out of cheap wood, and you stretch a piece of plastic. I, I like to use six mil poly. It's a kind of heavy plastic you can get at a hardware store. You just stretch that across. It's almost looks like a window. You're making a window. Right, and you make that this, like half the size of all my garden beds are roughly eight by four. So you just make each one of those uh, four by four. Right, they're actually not quite that big, but they'll fit in the box sort of thing. So uh, you just put that down over the soil, and uh, it'll create a little microclimate in there and warm things up. Really simple, and they store easily. You can even use them to get things germinated as long as you get them off. You know, once you see things poking up out of the ground. But they will work for that. And there's even ways to impart a bit of a dome uh, shape onto that. I mean, I've, I've done videos recently on, on just you piling up mulch in the center to make a little, you know, point. But, but there's, even if you put a little uh, bucket under the center, you could dome it up a little bit. And uh, that would allow maybe an extra week of transplants growing underneath it. So there's certain things you can do to make the most of those. Really, really cheap, simple, easy way to affect a microclimate in a garden. Uh, also plastic strips. So what I call a plastic strip is I, I get a rectangular, usually it's about four feet long and about a foot wide. You get a rectangular strip of plastic, about four feet long and a foot wide. And it's four feet long because the rows of my bed uh, go perpendicular to the overall length, right? So, um, so that's four feet long. Um, and all you do is you attach uh, a piece of uh, like two by three or one by three to either side lengthwise. So you've basically got something that almost looks like a scroll, but you know it's only a foot wide, and you can roll it up, right? So you can roll it up, and it's just two long pieces of wood that are three feet long, so it's very easy to store. And then you just unroll that, and you lay it down over, over a row where you um, sow the seeds, and just leave it there until the seeds are germinating. You can put it there to, to warm the soil up before sowing, 
you, know, you can put it there once you've sowed the seeds to warm it up and help the seeds germinate. Right? You can basically have it there until uh, the, the plants are growing and they're poking up out of the ground and starting to touch the plastic. Then you get to get it off. Right? But that's a really cheap, simple, easy way to break the rules. And you can get things going a lot earlier just by using those. Right? Really simple. Um, and just another trick, really simple, even simpler still, is just a piece of plastic. And that's how I got my uh, beans going last year. I mean, uh, uh, one of my, I, I grew beans in a garden that's, that's bordered by uh, rocks. And I, I put all the beans in the garden. I, I put a piece of plastic over that garden for about a week before I sowed anything, just to get it extra warm. And then I put the beans in the ground. This would have been like the middle of May. So it really too early to plant beans. Maybe it was a little bit later than that. Anyway, um, too early to plant beans generally here, uh, at least in my experience. Uh, they often rot if you plant them in the middle of May. Um, I've certainly had it happen. And this year was a really bad year. I mean, we had, uh, or this, this past year, 2018, we had late frosts that killed a lot of things. Uh, once I put those things down, I just put uh, plastic over the thing and weighted it down for a few rocks, with a few rocks, and just let, you know, so it wouldn't blow away, and just left it there until... Uh, the plants germinated uh, and then uh, that's all I did uh, any night where there was a risk of frost I just put the plastic back on but there's something that rolls up to like you know, it looks like a post you know the way you roll up a piece of crystal board uh, so again it gets really small easy to pack away um, you have to be careful how you how you secure it or it can blow away uh, other you know to go back to that previous example the plastic strip that one by four type thing with two pieces of wood on the other side the reason I only make it, you might say to me, why, why don't you make it longer? Why don't you make it or, or wider, for instance? Why don't you make it two feet wide or three feet wide? Because it's got a piece of wood on either end, like a scroll. Um, if it's too wide, the wind can get underneath it and blow it. I've, the first time I, I made these, I made them four feet wide. I just had a four by four piece of plastic with a four foot long piece of wood on either side. I could roll it up. Very easy to put away. But what happens is that a little bit of wind gets underneath that uh, middle part where there's no wood <laughs> and lifts it up a little bit and before you know it, it's blowing away. Yeah, I'm sure you could you know, weight it down, but there's ways around that too. You can weight it down with some rocks and stuff like that. Um, but the good thing about having the strip only being a foot wide is if you just plant a row here or a row there, right? Um, it's really handy. Or if you're starting one thing earlier, you know, it's just, it's just very um, flexible, very modular. There's lots of different ways you can use it. Very, it's a very versatile type thing. And I, these are all things I currently do in my garden. I don't just do anything one way in particular. I like to have lots of different tricks up my sleeve. Um, another trick is to just find an old window that somebody's thrown out. That's preferably a heavy wooden one. And just lay it down on the soil. Um, and, and that'll get things going. And, and there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. But man, will that get things warm. And uh, if you're if you've got a really big windstorm coming up, you might want to put a rock on it or something because I've had windows blow across my garden and smash. Um, another good trick is uh, what I would call a window box. So you you get a window of some kind and then you build a wooden frame. Uh, it could be six by six or or two by four. Sorry, six by four, uh, two by six or two by four or two by eight or whatever. But you you basically build a, a wooden frame. Um, the dimension of the lumber you use just makes it higher off the ground, right? Six inches is going to be six inches high. Uh, two by eight is going to make it eight inches high. It, you know, so the, 
the the wider the dimension of the lumber you're going to use, whether it's six inches or four inches, six inches or eight inches or more, uh, just means you can leave an arm that much longer before the plant is has outgrown it, right? Of course, the bigger it is, the more that lumber costs, and the, the more storage room it takes up, and all, and the heavier it is to move around. Um, you know, I would say two by six or two by eight is really all you need. Um, anyway, you just get an old window and you, you make a frame that fits that window and you screw it into the frame. Or you can make a frame like that, exactly the way I just described. And I've got, I've done a, I, did, I did a video, if you look, I think last fall or, you know, over a year ago, where I showed how I made one with uh, an old uh, screen window. But even if you just made that, that box, that, 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 you know, I think mine are about three feet by three feet, give or take, right? Um, even if you just made that box, you could staple plastic on that, and it would basically be like a little tiny uh, mobile cold frame, right? I like things being mobile um, because it, it gives you, I like to practice uh, a lot of uh, rotation of my crops. I like everything to be different, growing in a different place uh, every year. Um, so I like these sort of microclimate uh, methods where I can pick it up and move it and put it somewhere else and use it where I need it and then take it off when I don't need it. Remove everything once it's warm enough and let the rain on it. I don't like having to water stuff. So I like everything being modular and mobile and movable. Uh, and finally, there's the uh, the cold frame, which I left for last because I like it the least. Even though people are all going crazy about cold frames, I've got three of them in my garden, and uh, I just I'm I'm sure there's some aspect of the design. Um, I'm sure there's better ways I could design it. I've, I've even lamented. That I don't like the design of the ones I, I, I did. All that being said, what I don't like about a cold frame is that it's kind of a fixed location. You can't move it around. If you could make a light cold frame that you could pick up and move in different places, which just about all these other things I just mentioned are kind of like that, um, that's better. But um, what I don't like about the cold frame is, you know, I'm inclined to want to grow peppers and tomatoes and things like that and eggplant in my cold frames, but those are all the same family of plant. They're all in that nightshade family, whatever it's called, right? So it's it's not good to be planting the same kinds of things in the same place year after year after year, right? So there's got to be some year where, you know, every one of my garden beds, I like to plant beans every once in a while to sort of give the soil a break. Beans are, aren't really heavy feeders, and if anything, they, they sort of help the soil out a little bit. So I like to move things around and plant different things. Uh, what a waste of a cold frame growing beans in it, but I'm, I'm going to do it in one of my gardens this year, actually, one of my cold frames, just to give it a break from being a tomato and green pepper, <laughs> that sort of thing. And I, you know, just to speak to the questions that might arise from that, uh, Greg, oh, cold frames are great. You can have kale salad in January. No, I can't. <laughs> I had kale in my cold frames this year. I'll die. It's it, The plants are still alive, but the leaves are all, I didn't even, you know, I harvested some, um, in uh, oh, around December or something like that. I can't remember the exact date. But I mean, I had, le I had I had kale plants with leaves that were growing in my garden going into winter. And the soil gets so cold that the plant could not take up, and my guess is what happened is that the soil gets so cold that the plant could not take up moisture from the soil and it dehydrates. That's exactly what it looked like. It looked like the plant died from a lack of, of water, even though there was the soil had moisture in it, but the soil was frozen. So roots can't take up moisture if the soil is frozen. Those plants can survive being frozen, but the leaves cannot withstand being frozen for multiple days. Right? They will dehydrate. 
Um, so, and that's what happened. So, in, in my cold frame, I got the kale is right now. I think the soil is just thawed out in most of them, and the kale has got these little teensy tiny leaves growing there. And that's the main reason I planted them there was one to prove that you know you're not going to be like making eating buckets and buckets of kale all winter long. I think I beat that to death. At least for my microclimate, the idea of having a cold frame garden in the winter with all the stuff in it is is just not for me it's not a reality I'm sure there's a couple tweaks I could do to the design to make them a little bit more efficient but um, not with the kinds of winters we tend to have where I am right uh, so yeah the cold frame is not uh, uh, for me for those reasons uh, it's, it's still a good kind of microclimate um, but uh, you know the fact that I can't rotate crops as efficiently I like being able to move the microclimate I don't like uh, the microclimate being a uh, fixed, fixed structure. So that's just my take on that, and I'm sure those people are going to disagree with me. And uh, you know, let me have it in the comments, please. And you know, even when I, you know, I love it when people disagree with me because it, it gives me uh, food for thought. I could be wrong. <laughs> I've definitely been wrong. Um, and and if, again, as I said before, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's going to work for me. It, it all depends on. Tell me what your growing degree days are. You know, look it up. Right. Find find that episode. There's a website you can go to figure that out, and don't tell me what your zone is. That doesn't tell me anything, right? If, if, if it's 10 degrees colder all winter long where you live, but it's sunny all the time, you're going to have better results in your cold frame in your greenhouse than me. That's just, just the way it is because the thing runs on sun. If there ain't no sun, it ain't running. Um, anyway, I'm not trying to get competitive, uh, combative here, just, just anticipating the kind of questions will come at me. But yeah, by all means, uh, let me know what you think about all of that. Uh, another approach, which I've read about, I, I do not, I am 99.9% .9 certain it would not work for me here where I live. Um, it's, it's called, but I do think it's a really great technique, and I've seen it work in other locations, and I know it works really well if you've got the right location. And that is called the Wallapini Garden. So, if you, I mean, you can just Google it and look it up, but I mean, just to provide a very simple definition or a description of what a wallapini garden is, imagine a basement that's been dug out of the ground and a glass roof has been placed over that basement. So it's a subterranean garden. It's a garden that's below grade that the roof is transparent in some way. And there's various kinds of designs, right? Um, you can build it into the side of a hill. There's all kinds of stuff you can do, right? Um, the reason I don't think it's really the right approach for where I am here is because uh, if you dig in the ground where I am, you get water. <laughs> if you want to make a fish pond, just dig a hole. It'll be full of water, <laughs> especially where the, the soil is completely clay here. Uh, it just gathers water. I mean, I got a goldfish pond in the backyard, and all I did to make the pond was dig. That's uh, <laughs> pretty much. And anywhere in my garden, when I dig, if you, if you watch some of those videos where I make. Uh, uh, culture beds and I dig down about a foot and a half. Uh, there's water. And to make a wallapini bed, usually you're going down like four feet, five feet, right? But the reason they work so well is because the the wall of that garden is basically an earthen wall. Right? There, there's some designs where they're they're dug into the side of a hill, so it's just the, the back of it, maybe the you know, it would be south facing, so the back would be dug out of a hill, so the back would be an earthen wall. 
Um, but regardless of how they're built, the, the idea is that earthen wall uh, is, a, is a heat sink, right? Um, the, uh, the sun shines in and all of that earth, um, there's different designs. Some people put bricks up, you know, there's different ways to hold all of that in. Um, but that, uh, that, that, that wall is a thermal mass, right? Also, you're getting the, you know, when you go down into the ground below the frost line, you're getting heat from that, right? I'm, I'm not an expert on these things. Um, I, I haven't really looked into it too much because I know if I just, if I dug down two feet here, it would just be a pond. <laughs> so then I'd have to get really sophisticated pumping it and draining it and so on and so forth. So uh, I'm not saying it can't work in Nova Scotia. I'm just saying where I live, <laughs> right? And where anywhere you dig becomes a well, not going to work here. So it's not interesting to me. Um, if I ever change my location, sure, totally on the menu. Um, now I did have an idea this year for, for planting my tomatoes. And the idea is called a, a mini wallapini. And the idea would be in my, in my, uh, in my beds that, I mean, a lot of people call them raised beds, but they're only, <laughs> the soil, the soil level is usually only about four inches above grade. Um, but that's still insulative in a sense. So I thought with a thing like a tomato, where the stem of a tomato can actually send out roots. And a lot of people plant the tomatoes sideways and then bend them up, right? So I thought, because I direct seed everything outside anyway, and I, I gotta hope I remember to try this. I think it's a good idea. I thought, what if you dig a hole in your soil? And hopefully it's, it holds up. <laughs> I'm sure you maybe could use a piece of cardboard to sort of, you know, hold, hold its integrity. So you dig a hole in your soil, let's say a, a five inch cylindrical hole in your soil. And it's, let's say it's four inches deep. And you plant a couple tomato seeds at the bottom of that hole. And then you put a, a cloche, I'm going to talk about those later in this episode, a cloche or, or some sort of piece of pla even a piece of plastic over the top of that hole. Right? That, to me, that's a wallapini. It's just a teeny tiny one, right? But basically you've got a basement with a transparent roof. And, uh, the sun would get through to the soil at the bottom. It would be completely insulated on all sides, and I think it worked. And then, of course, once the tomato's high enough, you can just fill the hole in. And then you don't like because if you plant tomatoes too, if you take a transplant and plant it too deep, it's so cold in those lower layers that it will, uh, you know, really hurt the tomato because it can't handle cold temperatures on its roots. But if you've had that little hole there and you've warmed up the soil at the bottom of the of the hole, and you can get things going that way. I think it'll work great. And then once you fill the hole back in, all of that stem will become extra roots and you'll just have this super plant. So I have not tried this. This is just one of my harebrained schemes for this year. I can't wait to give it a try. So that's, that's an idea I had. Um, also the greenhouse, finally. Let's end with the greenhouse. Um, of course the greenhouse is, is a great idea. Uh, I don't have a greenhouse, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to having greenhouses. Again, what, what I don't, I mean, aside from the fact that it costs a lot of money to build a good one, especially if you want one that won't, won't blow away. And there's, of course, there's many ways. I don't, one of my, um, uh, YouTube listeners described this greenhouse design he has where he put two used, uh, oil drums. Not, not 45 gallon drums. I mean, the, the things that people have on the side of their house. He got them for nothing. He put them on the north side of the greenhouse, filled them with water, and, <laughs> He said his greenhouse didn't freeze all winter long. 
Um, and that's despite having a fairly challenging winter this year with a lot of overcast days. Uh, a pain in the black too, right? Um, so anyway, a really clever way of, of you know creating a thermal mass uh, on the north wall. A uh, really good idea. So I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a greenhouse. I think it's a great idea. Um, so, but the things I don't like about them is, is they can get costly, especially if you want to build one that won't blow away. Um, I don't like that you can't water them, right? I mean, put it another way. I don't like that they don't water themselves. And I'm sure this is a sophisticated way you can make an eaves trough and have that be an automatic irrigation system of some kind. Of, I'm sure that can be done. Um, but again, you're getting technical, you got to take time and so on and so forth. Uh, I like things, I like just being able to take the lid off sort of thing. Maybe if you could have a roof that opens up, but then you run the risk of the roof blowing off, so on and so forth. So there's the whole watering issue. Uh, if it's a permanent structure, I got to water that thing all summer long. And then once summer's full on, I got to vent it when it's too hot, all that sort of stuff. And again, we have this problem of the unit not being mobile. So I can't work it into my crop rotation sequence. I have an idea in my mind of a very light greenhouse, almost like a tent, using that wire remesh stuff um, that is large enough to go over two of my uh, 4x8 beds so you can walk down the middle. Um, so, And that way you could, you could pick it up and put it, you could have it in one place one year and then move it over and have it in another place another year. Right? So I could put it in one spot for a given growing season and plant tomatoes and eggplants and all that sort of stuff in the greenhouse and really, you know, get an actual hot microclimate in that spot and I still have everything growing in the ground. Right? And then the next year I could pick it up and stick it over two other beds, assuming all my beds were properly juxtapositioned to one another, right? and then grow my peppers and I mean that's what I'd want it for, right? Those things can take the heat. They want the heat. So I could pick it up and put it in another spot in my garden over two other beds that are just the right size and just the right spacing and grow my eggplants and peppers and tomatoes in that spot and so on and so forth and just keep moving it around. So I have not done this but I you know when I lie in bed and I'm trying to get to sleep I I tend to run run through in my head how I, I would put these sorts of things together so I'm I'm working on it and uh, maybe this will be the year I pull that one off. Um, my, my concern is that I have to go, I haven't done the measurements, my concern is that the beds in my garden aren't positioned properly for that to work. So I might have to do a major repositioning exercise uh, in the fall this year, 2019, so that uh, in the subsequent year I can make something like that work in my garden. Anyway, that's, uh, that's about it. That's where, we're, where I am with that. I hope that was useful for you. All these different ways of getting things started a little bit early, and I'm sure there's others. I oh, I forgot about the cloche. So I, I just did a short video showing what I mean when I say cloche. C L O C H E. It's, it's just a little. Uh, I think it's the name comes from a kind of hat women used to wear in France or something like that. It's like a bell-shaped. It looks like a bell. It's a. In the old days, it was a glass bill. Now you can get them made of plastic, I and mean, you still you can still get glass bills if you want to pay like. 80 bucks each for them, but you can get a plastic one for considerably less. Um, so uh, it's just a, I'm looking at one right now, I got it on my desk, and I would say it's about an 8 inch uh, diameter at the base, and it's a dome shaped, and uh, it's got a little vent at the top you can open and close, and you just put that over the ground where you're going to sow your seeds. It's, I think it's ideal for something like a tomato or uh, squash. I, mean, I plan to use them for squash. I just did a video where I explained that. So 
I think the cloche is a good way to uh, a really simple kind of microclimate, very small, very easy to store, inexpensive, quick, easy. I, I don't think it's good for things like parsnips and carrots and beets and stuff like that, but it's good for plants that start small and get really big. And I think it's also ideal for plants that sprawl. So let's say you had a, a you know, an area that's four by four, but that whole area is going to be taken up by two plants. Well, then that's where you want to use the cloche because you don't need a huge microclimate to get the small seedling started, right? And then ideally you've timed it right so that once the seedling's too big for the cloche, you can remove it and there's no more chance of frost and, and that sort of thing. And you don't need the cloche anymore and you can just put it away. Um, so that's where I think they come in great. And I think that's a, a really cheap, easy way to uh, affect another kind of microclimate in your garden. So I think I've covered everything I plan to cover. I'm sure there's some things I forgot, but I hope that gave you all some food for thought and gave you some ideas for how to bend the rules. Even if you're living in some place with uh, a much better uh, situation than I am, you can get things going that much sooner and that much quicker and get that much more going in your garden uh, if that's interesting to you. So if you're listening on YouTube, please like, share, subscribe, click the bell. And if you want to listen to more of these podcasts, go to my website, www.maritimegardening.com, where you, all, all other 76 episodes are available. If you're listening to this uh, through uh, various uh, podcast platforms, uh, check out my YouTube channel, maritimegardening.com, where, yes, I've got some, uh, some of these podcast episodes on there, but I've got like 240 videos on gardening. <laughs> that might be useful for you as well. If you want to help support the show, check out the uh, coupon codes offered by my sponsors, Vessi Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products, in the description box. If there's anything you need for your garden that they sell, uh, buy from them. That helps support the show, convinces them that I'm a good partner for them, and they'll continue to work with me. I hope you found this interesting, gave you some good ideas. Uh, please give me your comments and uh, let me hear your thoughts. Uh, until next time, get out there, get at it, have fun in your garden. Start thinking about whatever harebrained scheme you're going to do this year and find some way to put it into practice. Good luck. Thanks for listening.